Hey everyone, welcome everyone to the CNS October Journal Club podcast. I'm Nitesh Patel, Chief Neurosurgery Resident at Rutgers University, and uh, I'll be filling in as moderator as Dr. Vegas presently in the operating room. Today, I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to two of my most influential mentors, Dr. Robert Heary, author of the article for today's podcast titled Contract Negotiations for Neurosurgeons, a Practical Guide. Dr. Heary is a professor of neurological surgery at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine in Nutley, New Jersey. He's also the chief of neurosurgery at Mountainside Medical Center in Montclair, New Jersey. Our guest faculty is Dr. David Langer, professor of neurosurgery at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell, and also chairman of neurosurgery at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. We'll begin today's podcast with a brief overview of the recent paper by Dr. Heary, followed by questions by Dr. Langer and myself to help our listeners learn more on this critical topic for this activity. If you'd like to purchase the CME version of this podcast activity, please visit the educational catalog at cns.org. With that, I turn the floor over to Dr. Heary. Hi, Natesh. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to participate in this blog. Um, I put together a few notes from our paper that I wanted to review for people to get an overview. Number one, when looking for a job, preparation is key. Preparedness, learning the job, knowing the individuals, knowing who the boss is going to be. And it's essential at all times to speak respectfully. Salary has two strategies, either you set the bar or you let them set the bar. Now, I know our article basically encourages the person seeking the job to set the bar. My brother is a personnel recruiter and he would probably disagree with that philosophy, but that's something we can discuss further. One thing that's important to recognize is that everything is negotiable. The old days of take it or leave it are gone. You should get professional legal help by an attorney who works in the state that you're looking at the work for, as well as who's familiar with surgeon issues. It's important to remember that if it's not in writing, it can't be enforced. In addition to regular salary issues, there are a number of non-salary issues that are important bonus and how often it's actually paid is a really important issue for new residents coming into faculty situations. Call, whether it's one or more sites and the frequency of call, the, the occurrence of vacation and malpractice, is particularly tail aspects. The ability to go to annual meetings should be discussed. And restricted covenant, and whether that applies to the main site only or whether it applies to all sites that the health system you're looking at is involved with. I think senior mentors can be helpful. They can speak on your behalf, particularly if they know the lay of the land. You should try and start early to avoid rushing. Time is on the other team side. So the earlier you get involved in the process, the more opportunity you'll have for negotiation. Recognize that your spouse or significant other should visit and they should like the place you're looking at. It's clear that if your spouse or significant other does not like the place, the likelihood that you'll have a short stay there is very high. Understand also that letters of intent are non-binding, but employers will sometimes use this in their favor. So avoid giving too much up in a letter of intent. Other practice issues that you might want to consider would be an NP or a PA. Will you have your own? Will you have a shared one? That should be clarified. What about OR time and whether or not there are blocks and will you be assigned blocks should be clarified. 
And if you need any particular equipment, such as minimally invasive type surgery, or if there's a company that you want to work with, can you pick the company you want, or do you have to pick ones that are already involved with the hospital system? The factors that lead to partnership are important to discuss, such as is it based on the number of cases you do, the revenue you generate, positions held within the hospital are oftentimes helpful or important. As far as an academic appointment, will it be at the assistant professor level or instructor should be clarified? The concept of protected time is rare nowadays, even in academic appointments and are there teaching requirements? A couple things I think that are worthwhile are look at multiple jobs, look at academic and private. Your value is higher when you're being sought. So even if you in your back of your mind think that you're looking for an academic opportunity, look at some private opportunities and vice versa. I would suggest you talk to some neurosurgery people who are maybe five years ahead of you, people who might have been seniors when you were a junior, and find out what the going rate is for new people, as well as what they would have done differently had they had it to do it all over again. And the concept of bonus, I think, is really important. Does the bonus depend solely on you? Does it depend on how the entire practice is doing? Does it, intend, does it depend on how the hospital is doing? And how often are bonuses actually paid? Because many times people will be offered a salary with what sounds like a lucrative bonus. It's important to look into, are those bonuses actually paid? Last few points I'd like to cover are, what value do you bring to the practice? Are there novel techniques that you bring, such as minimally invasive spine surgery? And I think things like social media or social networking, some of our younger people coming into practices are very skilled there and can bring that, and that can be helpful and maybe even a selling point. Expected aspects are that you'll work hard, that you'll be smart, and that you'll be a team player. Those aren't really selling points because that's an expectation that everybody has. Get some strong phone calls from senior influential neurosurgeons. These can help you. And look at the track record of other hires over the past decade. How many of them made partner? How many left within a short period of time, such as two or three years? And was payment on bonuses an issue with respect to them leaving? Finally, only negotiate with a decision maker. You can discuss the job with junior partners in the, in the job that you're looking at, but really negotiation should be reserved for the person who's able to make the, the specific decisions. Know what your peers are being offered at multiple sites around the country so you have a better idea what your value is. That concept of anchoring that we discussed in the paper I'm not certain that I totally agree with that because I think it can sometimes cause you to appear greedy. And I think it's important, you can always reset the employer's offer if it's felt to be too low financially. And I think last and not least, you have to be willing to either walk away or look at other opportunities. And if you're not willing to do that, you're putting the other group decidedly in the driver's seat in a way that might be non That's what I have for a summary of our article. Hopefully that's helpful. Well, fantastic, Dr. Harry. Thank you. Um, I think this article is highly relevant to, uh, I think, everyone in neurosurgery, particularly 
uh, those sort of in my position, uh, senior residents and early on who are junior attendings, uh, starting to think about this. Uh, Dr. Langer, you know, you run a big department in New York City and are affiliated with multiple hospitals, um, running a very large service line. What are your thoughts on this regarding contract negotiation, especially for junior faculty and gr graduating residents? I mean, uh, I. I think the article is excellently put together, and I think it really it really taps into some of the, you know, the, the the critical thing that goes in the way you have to think about yourself. And the most important part of this is the know, know thyself first. You have to know what you're asking for. I think that's the most important thing. You know how much you have to know how much geography, money, and quality of life, and type of job you have to know what you're looking for first. I have a very contrarian attitude about this whole thing. And I, while this, I think, is aspirational, this article, you know, every person who's, you're negotiating with has a different way of doing it. I personally have realized that we, you know, in general, I think the money is a problem. It, that's the, that is the problem. And I go after it right away. I, I, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of money we're going to pay you when you start. That's it. I tell them the very first meeting, this is what's going to be. And... I offer a little bit more than fair market value because I I provide no incentive. There's no incentive in our contracts that are individual, and because we're we've maintained a culture here that's so important that the real problem when you take your first job. My first job was horrible. I I did exactly what Bob in his contract talked about about the hierarchical nature of I just I trusted my boss. He totally took advantage of me. You know, I didn't know what, and I was afraid to ask because he was like a father figure. And that's one of the things, problems when you stay where you train or you work for the guys who train you. It's very hard to break out of that kind of inferiority or, you know, kind of insecurity of making them happy and to be your own guy. And so, you know, I learned pretty quickly that my first job had nothing to do with my success. So this kind of work, especially if it's your first job, just take the best job. Like, I wouldn't even worry about the money unless it's so far off what's fair. I think going to Bob's point, though, there are things there that matter, like your OR time and your, the resource that you're a nurse practitioner, you know, an office, you know, things that I think are critical to your success. So, you know, the money right now in most environments, especially your first job, I think is more or less going to be what fair market value is most of the time. If you get a little bit more, a little bit less, it's probably based on things like, the wealth of the hospital that you're in, the 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 type of insurance payer mix, and the the thing is, usually you get paid a little less when it's busier, you know, when you have kind of more, you know, sick patients that are that are less well insured, and often those jobs pay less, but they might be better first jobs. Whereas joining a private practice group, you may be expected to you know grow a practice over a period of time, maybe get paid a little bit more, but it all goes back to know thyself. And and the money you get paid your first year, I would bet on average, people who make probably more in their first contract may end up with less twenty years down the road, potentially. I, I'm just thinking out loud that if you really want to be a leader and you really want to set a standard of care and want to be unique in what you do and and take some risk and be creative, which was driving me, and I would you know if that's who you are, you got to trust your mentor first, and you have to be in a culture that has a, a track record of developing young neurosurgeons. That's when you're negotiating your first job. So that's what I would look for. I, I, as much as I think the mechanics of the contract and the specifics in the contract are important, whether it's private practice or academics, 
the key thing is looking at other young people that have been successful. Are there, are there, is there a history of, of developing young talent? Is the geography where you want to be? Is the, is the culture the way you want it? Is the quality of life the way you want it? And what are your long-term goals? Do you want to be a chairman someday? Or do you want to drive a Ferrari someday or both? I mean, you sort of have to know. And if you make a mistake in your first job, you're much more likely to make a mistake based on what your final decision is than on money. Because you're much better off taking a little less, but being in the right track to what you want, than taking more and then unraveling that, you know, 10 years later and wishing that you'd done better to start. And so I do think that there's a, here, here's an example. When I was recruiting a spine young attending, I had two people that I, I wanted. I couldn't decide which one to take. And it was difficult. And I, I looked at the guy and I knew that one was more, I thought one was more likely to stay and then the other one. And so since I didn't want to lose both, and I'm giving you feedback on my side, I didn't want to lose both. And it was both had the same time. So I offered one the job, and it turned out he didn't. He he couldn't decide. He was like paralyzed. And the thing that bothered him the most was that there was no RVU incentive, because he was more interested in making money as his first, which is fine. You know, spying guys can be like that. And the truth is, it's true. And the truth is, is that 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 the other guy was interested in in innovation, and technology and building an academic practice. And he fixed, you know, and I told him the reason why I'm not giving you an RVU contract is because I want you to focus on those things during your first three years. You'll have plenty of time down the road to pick up these skills and make more money because last time I checked, you need another contract for two or three years. And whatever you do, you have to negotiate at year four and or year three for year four. And if you crush it, they're going to pay you. So I think that there's a tendency to put a lot of effort into your first contract about some of these things, but in big picture down the road, what makes the most difference, these other more soft things that are not as hardwired. And in some ways you need to pay attention to that even more. And that's a bias I have. It's a way I have them negotiating. The other thing I always do, when I, if I bring a guy in from the outside, I always ask them how much money they're making right off the bat. The last thing I wanna do, is go through a bunch of meetings and flying people in or virtual meetings and go through all this crap and wasting time. And then all of a sudden you make an offer after all this work and they're like, well, I'm not taking that. I'm, you know, and then you get, so money's the issue with those, that, that to, to talk about it, you know, be open about it. This is how much I'm making. Okay. Now I know what his, like as, as Robert points out in the article, what's your, what that guy's base value is. Like if you're making a half a million bucks and you come to me and now you want a new, and you're coming from some other hospital, I know how much money making half a million. Okay. Then I know I have to offer more than that. I know, then I know what the, what job he's replacing. I know what the potential upside is. I know what the fair market value is. So my offer back to him is better. And, and I would argue as a young person, especially maybe not so much your first job, but later on, bring it up right away. Don't waste time like beating around the bush. So I just want you to know it's respect. I want you to know I'm making a million dollars right now. I just want you to know that. I, I hope that's not, you know, beyond what you're what you're thinking of. It's just respect. You're not going to take a pay cut. And a lot of times, the, the people who negotiate with they don't know what you're making, and they wait till all this water's under the bridge before they ask. So, as and when you grow up, I think it's a good negotiating tactic on both sides. Just get on the table, especially for a second job or third job. Talk about it. 
And it's just to know to set the, 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 the game for where what your expectation is. And I think it's, it's a very effective strategy for both sides. I don't know what Robert has to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I'd like uh, that's very, very many good points that you raised there, David. Um, I'm assuming you're the chair of your program at this point, because you certainly speak the way a chair would speak. Um, I think that there's value for people coming into practice. I think they need to know what their value is. And there are a number of, I think, tricks that they fall prey to. And I've been asked many times over the years by graduating residents who met with me to try and get ideas for how to negotiate their contract. And probably the best advice I can give is avoid thoughts about bonuses, avoid thoughts of getting a salary plus productivity bonuses that could be tied to either RBUs or revenue generated or anything like that, because way too often these quote bonuses don't end up materializing. And for whatever reason, oh, our people in this area or that area struggled, the department's having trouble, therefore we can't um, we can't accommodate giving these bonuses. Um, so I would look at the offer, whatever you're looking at, at what's guaranteed. What is the monies that are guaranteed to you and evaluate the job by that matter. And if a big bonus is looked at in the back, in the back end, be suspicious that it may or may not ever happen. I also think, that, I'm sorry, go ahead. I also feel that um, a little bit disagreeing with what David said, sorry, um, but- I expected you I to. Think, <laughs> I, I think getting multiple offers um, can lead the employer to make you a stronger offer. I think that when I came out of residency, it was right at the time Hillary Clinton was involved as Bill Clinton's healthcare person, and physician salaries were in the dumper. They were really down that year. The year before me, a bunch of my friends who went into spine were got tremendously poor deals. And I remember going to meet with my eventual employer, Peter Carmel, who was just an outstanding boss for me for 20 years. But when I went to meet with him about my first contract, I had interviewed at a number of different private, private and academic positions. And Peter asked me a fair amount about some of these other jobs. And I'm convinced to this day that I received a much stronger opening offer from him because of some of these other offers I had gotten from other places than had I just gone in there cold. So I do think there's value to the person who you're meeting with knowing that there are multiple other places interested in you. And lastly, like that thing that you see on the uh, planes when we fly and you read about it, where it says, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. And as a result, I think it's worthwhile to be respectful know your information cold be very well prepared when you go to your interview and know everything about the place that you're interviewing at and and try and get yourself the best deal you're going to get if possible in a respectful fashion because what you get your first few years very often will help determine how you're going to do in future years down the road yeah, I mean, I, I I don't disagree that getting other offers and negotiating, no question. I've been in those situations on my side where you know the guy's got another offer and, and it's going to definitely increase your 
your offer. So I, I agree with you. I mean, but they're two separate issues. You know, I, I think, it, again, I totally agree with you about bonuses, too. The trouble with bonuses, you have to go to the well every year. It's on your mind. You're thinking about it. And then no one, a lot of times, some of these places aren't really very well structured for even assessing the bonus. And then you have to feel you have to go to your boss or go to an administrator and bring it up. And they go through some crazy hieroglyphics and figure out whether you deserve it or not. And it's 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 destructive. It's destructive to culture. You know, you feel let down, and it's anxiety provoking. And I, I completely agree that bonuses are have they're kind of a double edged sword, especially if they're related to productivity. I, I think that the best bonus is your next contract. If you do well, you're going to get paid more next time. And if you don't, then you might as well just you know take a, a, a guarantee that's fair. And if you are a little slow building your practice, you're not held hostage over some aspirational, you know, shiny object that they're throwing in front of you. And it just makes you anxious, you know? And so I, I'm, I'm a, I've, I've really tried to take money out of the contract once you're in, that you just don't think about it. You just get paid well, pay the guy what they're worth. And I, the, your numbers speak for themselves when you look, and it's true, the average neurosurgeon contribution margin is at least a million and a half dollars. There's plenty of part A money around for neurosurgeons and non-private now when private practice is different admittedly because it's all it's all revenue but in university practices or pseudo academia where you're in a, you know a hospital that's where you're full-time in a hospital there is money on the hospital side to keep you to keep you whole and very often the revenues particularly in city environments or places with the where the uh, insurance mix is worse the hospitals need you to increase their case mix index which increase their overall contribution margin it increased their their actual part a revenues because of neuroscience in general it's only second behind cardiac and cardiology in general and very close to both as far as the overall contribution margin that neurosurgery makes i mean our department has like three percent of the cases and makes six percent of the contribution margin for our hospital so that's that's significant in fact we make you know a significant component of the contribution margin are given our size per doctor in our hospital so they know this and you should know that this is why a fair market value for a young neurosurgeon is as high as it is. It's not about your revenue that you're, you're bringing in, that you're collecting sometimes. It's the money the hospital's making. Now, if you're going to a private practice, you don't have that luxury. And the private practices suffer a little bit from this. And they always bring this up. Well, they're only paying you because you're hooked up with the hospital. And the hospital benefits from you. Well, that's correct. So you, you, in some ways, that's why a full position, in my opinion, has a little bit more, there's a little more honesty. It's a little less selfish. There may be less financial upside, both short and long term, but I do think that the quality of life is better in some ways. And also the ability to do things long term and be aspirational about long term contributions and doing things outside of your wheelhouse are, are much more open. I mean, when you're 60 years old, are you going to want to be working and doing the same number of RBUs as you did when you were? 40 years old? The answer is probably not. And so, and it's going to get, it's getting harder and harder because of the way the payer mixes have changed, the way the, the instruction market's changed, except for New Jersey, which is still wackadoodle with some of this stuff. I mean, most of the, <laughs> most of the environments that we go into are not like that. And so set yourself up from the beginning for when you're 55 rather than when you're 45. And think about a, a these decisions matter your mentor matters. You're a puzzle piece, not a box. And and people who recruit boxes, just sticking you in a box, it doesn't work as well. 
you're a puzzle piece. It has to mesh with the other doctors in the department, the goals of the department, the chairman. Is he giving up cases? If the chairman's doing the most case in the department, run like hell. Sir, because that means there's the incentives are not aligned for, for collaboration. It's a very easy question. You know, how does, you know, it's maybe hard to ask, but you know, see, you can find out who's the busiest guy in the department. If it's the chairman, it's something, it's something worth looking into. Now in private practice, it's a little different because the busiest guys and the wealthiest guys are the longest because they, you know, they tend to have the, the, the referral line to the most robust. And they, they, they've been there the longest, they build these things up, and they deserve every dollar they make. And so, and since they're probably a little bit more money sensitive, it's not surprising that's like that. And also the structure of the practice matters. And Robert, I'm sure you could speak to this, that there are lots of different kinds of private practices, some totally socialistic and, you know, and some complete capitalistic. And you have to know yourself, like what kind of environment you want to put yourself in. And, and that's a whole other conversation. So while I think the contract is important, these other things affect it. They affect your happiness, they affect your value, they affect your contribution, and they affect your long-term goals. And that's, I think, what's, you know, why this is a great starting point, but be, you know, going beyond that, and, 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 the, and some, when, Bob, when, when, when Bob talks about these other factors, don't discount them, and they are as important as the money you're making. Um, I just wanna just say thank you to both of you. So much, such the amount of wisdom is incredible here, um, especially for, folks in my position right now, you know, we're going to be sending this podcast out uh, across social media to just almost every resident will have access to this in the country. So we are sort of running uh, closer to our end point, but before we do, and I do want to just get from both of you, this, if you could give across all the advice you have, the single most important piece of advice from each of you for, let's say a PGY seven or PGY six nursery resident looking at jobs, what would that be the single most piece, uh, important piece of advice for a contract? Sure. I'll take that. Um, thanks, Natesh. I think going into the interview prepared, I think it becomes clear to both of you how prepared you are. If you're walking into an interview and you don't know much about the person you're interviewing with and you don't know much about the practice that you're interviewing for, whether it be private practice or academics, it becomes relatively clear early on, are you prepared? Did you do your homework for that interview? And I think that that's essential for you to get the best possible um, opportunity you're gonna get. And the other thing, a point that David made, he's 100% correct on, you need to be happy. And your significant other needs to be happy. And if you go into a place where you're not gonna be happy, um, it's not gonna work and you're not gonna end up being there for a prolonged period of time. And lastly, you wanna work for a boss who's a great boss. And I was incredibly fortunate for 20 plus years to have an outstanding boss as my direct mentor and my leader during my academic career. And you wanna get a boss who's looking to support the people under him, um, not to use them to advance himself, but rather he's genuinely interested in trying to advance you I was lucky I had that boss, and I think that that's another important factor to look at. Dr. Langer? I mean, I think you know, there's lots of negotiations. There's a big difference between your first contract and your last one, number one. And I think the, the key, I, number one, is your spouse or significant other and, and, your, and your happiness. I mean, if your wife's unhappy or your significant other's unhappy, okay, it's just, it just causes the marriages to end. You're become not as good of a parent. You don't want to go home. I've been there. You know, you just don't want to do that. And 
So I think that's really critical. Um, but and then the same token, I just don't think money should be the number one priority during your first contract. You have to get paid fairly, but don't let money take away. There's this whole thing about geography, money, and job. You can't have all three. Geography and job, time and again. The money will come. Success brings money. If you're the best at what you do and you do great work, you're going to get paid. Don't let money take your first job as much as you'd think. Now, there, there doesn't mean you shouldn't negotiate. Doesn't mean you shouldn't get another offer and get as best, better, as good of an offer as you possibly can. But don't let money be your North Star, because the minute you do that, you've given into something that will have negative impact on your ability to make moves. So if you're in a bad situation and you're making a lot of money, you may want to get out and all of a sudden you're taking a pay cut. That no one can do that. And people are locked into jobs like this for their entire lives sometimes, because it's just they yeah. never can break out of that. In fact, a lot of out of network guys, as an aside, they're, they're, they're looking to get out because they're fearful, but they're never going to take a pay cut. So in this like purgatory area where, you know, when's this going to blow up? And, and that's sort of a senior problem to have. And it's, it's the same thing at the junior level. Don't let money make you the person you are. Or it's going to be okay. And um, I think happiness in your family and in your, in your personal life is key. And not letting money being ultimate arbiter of the best choice of job. I think one to one or the other, it's one thing. But don't take a job just based on making more money. I think that's that's sets you up for a lifetime of never being satisfied and potentially unhappy. Thank you both so much for joining us for this podcast and providing the amount of education and wisdom you're offering to everyone, especially with your years of experience um, in this field. Um, I'd like to just sort of close off by thanking Dr. Vega, Christy uh, from CNS, uh, Dr. Langer, of course, thank you. Dr. Heary, thank you. Also, CNS itself um, is, has been doing these podcasts now that I've been lucky to be involved with, um, and also Neurosurgery Publications. Um, just as a reminder to all of our listeners, if you'd like to purchase the CME version of this podcast activity, just visit the educational catalog at cns.org. And with that, um, we'd like to close off this month's podcast. Um, thank you so much. <laughs>